Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, mainstreaming Islamophobia. The former Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, recently wrote in The Telegraph that what she described as Islamists are, and I quote, bullying Britain into submission. The UK, she said, is sleepwalking into a ghettoized society where Sharia law, the Islamist mob and anti-Semites take over communities. This was the reaction to Braverman's comments by former Tory party chairman Lee Anderson on GB News. I heard the comments here. I heard the comments earlier you was making about Suella, some of the comments she made earlier this week. And I don't actually believe that these Islamists have got control of our country. But what I do believe is they've got control of Khan and they've got control of London. And again, this stems with Khan. He's, 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 he's actually given our, given our capital city away to his mates. We've got Stalin. Beware. Because if you let Labour in through the back door, expect more of this and expect our cities to be taken over by these lunatics. Since then, Anderson has had the Tory whip removed and although his comments were described as wrong and unacceptable by Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister refused to call them Islamophobic. The former Tory MP and the first Muslim woman in the Cabinet, Baroness Saeed Avasi, said if you can't call Islamophobia Islamophobia, then how are we going to fix it? Sadiq Khan said anti-Muslim hatred and bigotry are not taken seriously. Tory MP Paul Scully has also weighed in, claiming that Tower Hamlets in London and Sparkbrook in Birmingham, which both have large Muslim populations, are no-go areas. Let's speak now to Amna Abdul Latif. Amna is an independent councillor in Manchester and to Rahil Mohammed, who is founder and director of Maslaha, a charity that tackles inequalities and discrimination faced by Muslim communities. Rahil, I'll start with you. And what is the likely impact of comments like these? Hi, Adrian. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. You know, the impact of this rhetoric, and it's not just this rhetoric, it's also about the actions of this government, but the, the impact is immediate. We're hearing from parents and carers whose children as young as six are facing the impact of these kinds of remarks. There's a feeling of somehow that you don't belong, that there are certain lives that mean less. And to hear six-year-old children say that, to recognise that at such a young age, I think it's really, it's really heartbreaking. But I think there's almost like a bigger point, which is the reason why the PM isn't talking about Islamophobia, not calling it Islamophobia and racism, is because he wants to keep the conversation at this is one bad apple, rather than it's a systemic problem that runs not only through government and the different political parties, but also runs through our different public institutions. And until we have a conversation at that level, we're not really going to understand the full extent of Islamophobia in this country. It gets hidden. It gets hidden behind the spectacle of somebody like Lee Anderson occasionally. And we need to move beyond to see how Islamophobia shapes and influences different legislation, different law, how our different public institutions are run. Saeed Avasi has been very outspoken on this, and she said that the Conservative Party has failed to engage with an inquiry into Islamophobia. I don't think you can expect the Conservative Party to mark its own homework. I also think we've had inquiries before and nothing comes of those inquiries. 
we've had independent reviews and nothing really comes out of that those reviews what i want to see is i don't really want apologies unless it's backed up by action so what does that action look like and an example of that would be right now thousands hundreds of thousands of people in this country are horrified by the massacre of children and women and families in gaza now this government has sent guidance to for instance schools from the department of education and it talks rightly so about the loss of innocent civilian lives in israel but it doesn't once mention palestinian at all it doesn't mention gaza and that has a knock on impact in terms of how then schools and teachers respond to that and how that makes not just muslim communities but other racialized communities and also our jewish brothers and sisters who've been on these marches as well how it makes them feel and what i would like to see the government do is to send guidance which says you should be talking about this we shouldn't be censoring how our children and families are feeling that's the kind of practical initiative i would like to see i don't want to see an inquiry because i think we'll know what it says we know what racism looks and feels like don't need another inquiry for that the prime minister has refused to call Lee Anderson's comments Islamophobic. You could argue that the comments made by Lee Anderson, Suella Braverman and Paul Scully are all Islamophobic. Why is it so difficult to call out? I think that there is a particular problem around how politics has gone in a direction where basic respect and responsibility of the duties of holding a public office, where if you have wronged, you have done something wrong, you have done something that has caused harm, you have done something that has caused offence, at a bare minimum, you would expect an apology. And I think the normalization of Islamophobia by the Tories, but across the board, across our political spectrum, has been a massive issue as to why people like Lee Anderson can get away with saying, well, actually, I'm not going to apologize for this. And we'll probably have lots of supporters who will be clapping him and telling him how brilliant he is for not succumbing to the liberal elite and whatever other rubbish that they might be spewing on this. But I also, it really worried me listening to Rishi Sunak, the prime minister of this country, being asked whether this is what Lee Anderson said was Islamophobic and him dodging it all over the place in any way, shape or form to not actually say that it was Islamophobic. And, you know, the definition, I mean, is the basic. I mean, the definition is just the starting point. It's not even the actual work uh, that I think Raheel was kind of talking about. I mean, if you can't define it, you can't sort out the problem. But if you can't even define it, then how do you even start to put any actions in place that will then deal with this issue that is so ingrained across all of our institutions? This is the worrying bit for me, because, you know, as somebody who's a visibly Muslim woman, as a mother of two young girls, as somebody who consistently has to worry about their safety, particularly because I travel quite a lot across the country, where I'm constantly having to worry about my children's safety. And I do so more so at these particular points where we've seen huge levels of increases of reported um, Islamophobic hate crimes in this country because of the kinds of comments that we've seen from people like Lee Anderson, Suella Braverman and Liz Truss and, you know, some of the hilarious but also very scary things that she's saying and doing in the US 
these are all things that impact directly on the way that then we live our lives as British Muslims in this country. And that is a really huge concern for me. But I also don't want other political parties to think that this is just a Tory issue. It isn't. This is across and, and cuts across all of the political parties. And I say this as somebody who left the Labour Party very recently over the Gaza debacle, because I felt like the Labour Party was actually not listening to Muslim members, those of us who held office um, and had campaigned and supported the party. And, and suddenly we were unimportant. We weren't important enough to be listened to by the leader of the Labour Party. And that is a real concern. And I think it's, it stems into how Islamophobia has become so normalized that during these particular periods where we have elections coming up, Muslim communities become the political football and the political fodder for politicians to use. You talk about the rise in Islamophobia, and I know that Tell Mama, which is a charity that documents anti-Muslim hatred, said that the number of Islamophobic incidents had increased between the 7th of October and the 7th of February by more than 200%. What I've seen is much more around kind of the experiences of safety of our communities has shifted. I know, for instance, you know, many people will not wear anything that would suggest that they are supporting Palestine, such as the kafir or a badge when they're out and about because they've had remarks or they've been physically abused or they've been verbally abused. So things like that, that specifically associate to obviously what's happened since 7th of October. I think for many in our communities, it's about that silencing, that Muslim lives don't matter, that we can't talk about actually what's happening to Palestinians in Palestine, that how we talk about this issue has lots of concerns about our communities and we're not able to kind of talk about it. And I think that that's where I think the biggest concerns come up for me. I mean, I've had, you know, people call me all sorts of stuff when I'm out and about. I've had people spit in my direction. I've had people try and, and remove my headscarf, try and pull it down. I've had people following me to tell me all sorts of stuff and they'll just walk beside me to just swear at me. And, they, you know, all those kinds of things that you constantly have to kind of navigate and deal with that no one should have to, you know, have to constantly have to think about these things or have to experience them. But I also go back to kind of what Raheel was talking about in terms of what it means then for our children. What does it mean for those generations of young people who feel that being a Muslim in this country means that, you know, you're not British enough? And I think that's my biggest concern because me bringing up my kids here in this country, one of my biggest things was about how do I make sure that they get that they are Muslims, but they are also very much British and that they have and should have equal access to everything that they need in this country. And unfortunately, that's not always been the experience that they have. I guess that's the concern that I think we should be really talking about. I mean, Islamophobia renders itself and shows itself in all sorts of ways. And I think we do need to be talking much more about the institutional, because actually the guy who will walk with me to swear and shout out Islamophobic slurs is the least of my problems, <laughs> essentially. But then how do I access services? How do I access support? How do I ensure that I feel safe to contact the police if I need them? How do I know that I will get the right services and, and support when I access those? How do I know that my children will get a decent education and that they will not be defined just based on their faith? Those are the things, the wider things that we need to talk about that go beyond kind of the personal responses to Islamophobia that we might see on the street. 
This is a situation, Rahil, which is not new. I think back to articles written by Boris Johnson in which he talked about Muslim women peering out of letterboxes, for example, and other racist language that Boris Johnson used. That didn't stop him becoming prime minister. And I think this is the point that Armin has just finished on as well. You know, Islamophobia is a societal problem. It runs through society. And you have moments like the moment we're facing now. We had another moment like this with COVID. What COVID did is it shone a light on the existing vulnerabilities and structural racisms that already exist in society. And we saw who was dying first. We saw it on the fronts of the new, those newspapers. It was black and brown doctors. It was people who were living in poverty. And Michael Marmot, who's one of the country's leading health experts on the social determinants of health, speaks about racism as being a, a social determinant. There's a slight hypocrisy where, you know, when politicians talk about feeling safe, Muslim and black and brown communities feel unsafe on a daily basis. And that's because of the legislation that we have in place. It's like, it's because of policies like prevent, counterterrorism policy, they're supposed to spot extremism before it happens, operates in a pre-criminal space. And guess who the communities are who are most disproportionately targeted by that? It's Muslim communities. So, you know, children in primary school are growing up censoring themselves because they're afraid of what might happen. We know of teenagers and people in their 20s who don't access mental health services because they're worried about being referred to prevent. Families censor what they talk about in the home. So it has this chilling, this chilling impact. And Lee Anderson, for kind of the media, becomes a spectacle to shine a light on this. But I think we have to we have to move beyond that and look at, well, if we're really honestly serious about tackling Islamophobia, I don't care about the likes of Boris Johnson and Lee Anderson. I care about what are you doing about Prevent? What are you doing about the fact that the number of Muslims in the prison system has more than doubled in the past 15 years, makes up 18 percent of the prison population? If you're not looking at those two areas as an example, you do not take Islamophobia seriously. In his interview with BBC Radio London, in which he talked about there being no-go areas, Paul Scully did touch on something which I think will resonate, however unfairly, with many traditional white voters, both Conservative and Labour voters, when he talked about changing neighbourhoods. I'm sure you'll recognise that narrative. How can politicians who are not Islamophobic, or those of us who are not Islamophobic, go about challenging the myths that go around changing neighbourhoods and no-go areas? I mean, it's about education. It's about talking to people in communities. It's about talking directly to families who sort of face this on a daily basis. It's understanding the kind of the wider issues that lead to maybe communities, you know, living more closely together. I mean, why wasn't he talking about gentrification? If you go into East London and you're not talking about gentrification, you clearly don't have an understanding of what's happening in East London. I mean, that that's a possibility, right? That has nothing to do with Muslims and black and brown people. That's to do with capitalism and the exploitation of like who owns land, right? So it's a really unsophisticated, crude argument. I would say it's about creating space to have these discussions. Zara Sultana said this, I think, on her, on her social media. She was like saying, there is a difference between having robust debate 
and being threatened. And I just wonder how many politicians are so far removed from their communities and are so either just stuck in Westminster and have forgotten how to just have a normal conversation with people. And they expect that they'll just turn up every four or five years and get our vote. I'm sorry, but you are only there in Westminster because we have given you permission to be there. And don't just turn up every four or five years. Engage on a more regular manner with your local constituencies. Amna, people will have seen demonstrations around the horrendous situation in Gaza over the last few weeks, and they are sometimes characterised as anti-Semitic demonstrations. They'll have heard people chanting slogans like from the river to the sea. And I'm not going to rehearse here whether that is anti-Semitic or not, but some of these demonstrations have appeared to be threatening. What, what do you think of that? I think it's a, it sets a certain narrative, isn't it? I often get people who wouldn't normally go, you know, wouldn't go up to me and speak to me. But once they get to know me, they're surprised. <laughs> they're surprised that a Muslim woman sounds like me, has the interests that I do, holds the kinds of job roles that I do. Because in their perception, even if you're not, you know, uh, Islamophobic in, in that sense, you're not kind of the Lee Andersons of the world going around and, and talking all this very disgusting racist stuff. You get nurtured into this idea that being a Muslim means that you are a threat. And therefore, when you see large groups of people who are, are Muslims, although, you know, those protests are not just, you know, Muslims, there's, you know, Jewish bloc. There are lots of white British people who turn up to those. There are lots of people who are not Muslim, who are people of colour who come and support those protests. So I can see why, you know, this kind of idea of threat comes from because I've had this all my life this idea that I am threatening just by being a visibly Muslim woman and have been told many times that I should have no right to speak on anything because unless I take my headscarf off and somehow the headscarf changes who I am as an individual and I've only got a right to speak if I don't have it on these kind of really bizarre kind of you know Islamophobic narratives that kind of sit in the context of our communities and in the society that we're all in so I get the kind of why that that sells that message. But I think, you know, we have to understand that this government has tried to curb our right to protest. And that is something that should worry all of us, because the government doesn't always speak on our behalf. And we've seen that with this, you know, over 75% of British public want to see a ceasefire. They want an end to this violence. And it's only now that we've got to that stage, even though this was something that the British public believed back at the end of last year. So when the government doesn't speak for you, doesn't speak on your behalf, we have a right to be able to get out on the street and be able to protest. Obviously, that should be done in a respectful way. And if somebody is breaking the law, or particularly if you know some of the language that is being used is anti-Semitic or racist in any way, then that obviously needs to be dealt with. That does not, however, mean that the whole of the, the protest and the right to be there should then also be tarnished by this. Because you go to a protest, you know, with your own goodwill, you know, some people would ruin that. But that does not mean that the, your right to protest should be kind of demeaned or lessened. And nor should these protests be treated as if they are threatening because most of the time they aren't and we've seen that the Met have also kind of shared information that's there's some of the most peaceful protests they've ever had in London 
all in all, considering the large numbers of people that have been coming to those protests, that actually there's not been that many issues. So we have to, you know, we have to kind of be challenging. And I think this is a, you know, what Rahil was saying about the debate. There is no debate. It's an either or. It's kind of like you, we we all hold very specific positions and we can't seem to have a conversation with each other about our differing perspectives. And I think this is where we land in this troubled waters of where everything is really distorted because there doesn't ever seem to be a grey area. There doesn't ever seem to be a position of, oh, let me listen to your perspective and let me hear you, as opposed to kind of this very distinct attitudes towards these issues. And talking about Muslims gives your ratings really high ratings. I mean, God, the comments sections, I, you know, one of the things that I don't do anymore is read the comments on any news article that relates in any way to Muslims or Islam, because it is heartbreaking to read the level of Islamophobia that sits under there. But it's, you know, it's good ratings for lots of media. And that is the real issue. And it's scary. It's scary as a Muslim to consistently see, particularly during the election period, and I mentioned this earlier, whenever it's an election year, I hold my breath in because I think, God, what are they going to be putting out about Muslims? What are they going to be saying? What are they going to be doing? Because we are the fodder of politicians. We are the fodder for the make or break areas in this country of if we can throw Muslims under the bus, we might win a few votes here and there. What is the route? of Islamophobia? Why is our society so determined to find negative stories about Muslims? I mean, the root of Islamophobia is long and it goes back centuries. Even if you look around Elizabethan times, there were marches that were Islamophobic in, you know, how we would describe it now, depending on how trade was going on with the Ottoman Empire. That's what racism does, right? It's not fixed, it mutates and it evolves depending on what else is happening in society. Our responsibility right now is like, what are the different influences, different policy decisions, different global events that are happening that affect our communities here right now? And that will be what's happening in Gaza. It will be media coverage. It will be policies like prevent. It will be the expansion of prisons and the prison system. It will be the expansion of policing as well. And all of these come together and they influence and shape each other. I think one of the things that I feel heartened about is how communities are also resisting. So for the first time in my lifetime, I'm seeing across generations, different families marching together on the streets. That's really powerful. Like Amna was saying, we're taking our right to protest and assemble and we're using it and we're not, we're not afraid. And those marches aren't going away. And I think for me, that's a way forward. I think sometimes the effort of trying to just persuade government in these round tables that they organise with different charity sectors and policy people can sometimes lead to very little change. Whereas actually the people on the streets, that's real power. That can lead to change. And that's something I, I really hold on to as well. But we have to understand all of the different conjunctures that Stuart Hall will talk about that lead to different impacts on, on social issues. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois used to talk about witch words, you know, when it came to post-emancipation of of slavery. And I think Muslims for a while now have been another witch word, the radical Muslim, the extremist Muslim, the terrorist Muslim. And I think what's important is to shine a light on that, be really transparent and very public discussions about that, but also importantly, see how, what the tangible impact is in places that maybe underneath the radar, whether it's in healthcare, 
whether it's in schools or whether it's in the prison system. It's very long historic issue as to why we're dealing with Islamophobia in the way that we are. And the very recent history, I mean, you know, 9-11 and kind of that kind of very politicised of Islam and Muslims um, has obviously had a huge impact, at least in my generation. But I, I think I want to go back to the point that Raheel mentioned right at the beginning, which is about the systemic nature of Islamophobia across all of our institutions and our political parties and ensuring that that is the thing that we really start to think about and really understanding that Islamophobia is a form of racism, that it can't just be constantly that, you know, we can just forget or ignore nor what it's doing to our communities in the UK. Great to speak to you both. I'd love to stay longer, but I've got to head off shortly to uh, the no-go area of Spa <laughs> in Birmingham. And have a hurry. <laughs> uh, people in Birmingham know that Spa Hill, the no-go area, is the heart of the Balti Triangle. <laughs> Many I'll, have to, I'll have to come and visit if, <laughs> yeah. if this is the one area I can go walk around in. <laughs> But sadly, I've got to say the Balti Triangle in Birmingham, just on a, a brummy note but relevant here, the Balti Triangle has actually got many fewer Balti houses than it used to have. It's still very vibrant, but there's still only one or two of the original Balti houses left. But it's a, a really diverse and vibrant area. And let me tell any listener who's listening to this podcast, whatever your skin colour, whatever your background, you would have no problem walking around Spark Hill, no more or no less than you would in any other inner city area in any other city in the UK. Thank you to Raheel. Thank you to Amna. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. And if you want to support our work, please consider taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. That's our fantastic monthly newspaper. And it not only has the best of our online offerings, it has content that you can't get anywhere else as well. So do head over to our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's where you'll find details of how to subscribe. That's over at bylinetimes.com. This has been a We Bring Audio production. We'll see you again very soon for another Byline Times podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now.